0: The most difficult lie I have ever contended with is this. Life is a story about me. I remember reading those words from Donald Miller in his book, Blue Like Jazz, in the early 2000s, when that book was really hot and making its way around the circles. And one of the reasons it got such attraction is because he was so honest about his own journey and thinking about Jesus and discovering relationship with God. But there's this one place in which he talked about how he decided to to stop living by himself and just to move in with some other guys and have a group of roommates. And this is what he said he learned about himself. Living in community made me realize one of my faults. I was addicted to myself. All I thought about was myself. The only thing I cared about was myself. I had very little concept of love, altruism, or sacrifice. I discovered that my mind is like a radio that picks up only one station, the one that plays me. K-Don. All Don. All the time. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I certainly can. I tend to think about myself all the time because I'm with myself all the time and everything seems to be oriented around me as I go through my day. I'm certainly reacting to what's going on out there, so it's hard not to think about ourselves. It's almost like the default mode of our lives, isn't it? Well... When that takes root in our lives and the fruit begins to show sometimes it looks really ugly doesn't it and sometimes especially in communities of faith when that, that kind of self-centered me monster shows up on the scene it can wreck all kinds of havoc paul in his letter to the philippians is writing to this group of christians living in this roman colony in philippi And he's writing from prison. He's been in prison now for four years. And he's received word about how the Philippians are doing, and he's writing back to them. And he's encouraged them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, to stand firm in the face of opposition. And now, as we look at this chapter 2, we see him uh, compelling them to, to think about another adversary. Not just one that's on the outside, but one that is on the inside. And he's trying to get them to stop thinking so much about themselves and to start thinking about one another. And in fact, we're going to eventually get to chapter 4, where Paul ha- he calls out a couple of his friends. He says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. This is some 10 years after Paul started the church in Philippi. And these two ladies might have been part of that original group along with Lydia who converted when they heard about the good news of Jesus Christ. They're certainly leaders in the church and they're causing division. We don't know what it's about. We just know that the meme monster has showed up in their lives. And it's threatening to cut this community in half. And last week as we began to look at this, we came away with this core truth. The real issue here in their life and in our life, is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. And so we began last week taking a hard look and asking some hard questions about our own lives. And we're going to continue that kind of theme as we consider the life of Jesus. And so we're going to call our study today, Imitating Christ's Humility... And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, again, this week specifically focusing in on verses 5 through 8. And so let's pray as we get ready to jump in and look at this passage. Lord, it's so easy for us to think that life is a story about us. Our minds play our radio station all the time. We can organize life so that everything serves us, from our social media to to the things we choose to watch and entertain ourselves with. We seem to be at the center of everything, and yet, if the gospel is true, we are not the center of everything, but rather Jesus is, and that doesn't mean our lives are irrelevant, but that our lives find its meaning and significance in relation to the story of Jesus, and so as we consider the passage today, would you work in our lives, helping us to understand more about ourselves? To understand more about Jesus and his glory and everything that he has done for us. To wrap our story up in his story and to turn us inside out to give us his heart for others. And so help us understand that as we look afresh at this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the passage begins like this. This is the part we looked at last week, verses 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here the Apostle Paul says to these Philippian Christians, look, if you have any of these benefits in being in Christ then I want you to do me a huge favor. I want you to make my joy complete by getting along with one another. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. When we looked at this passage last week, I made the comment that, at least in my mind, there's no directive more difficult in the entire New Testament than verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or selfishness or conceit. The old King James put it in vain glory or empty glory. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So we ask the question, how is that even possible? How is it even possible to really count others as more significant than ourselves. I mean, we live in a world where we want everyone else to consider us more significant than them, right? That, that tends to be the heartbeat, and there may be some moments of altruism here and, and serving of others, but the bent of our lives seems to be focused in on ourselves. So how is it possible, as Paul wants these followers of Jesus to do, and as he would want us to do as well, to count others more significant than ourselves? And it has everything to do with humility. And so the answer to that, Paul begins to unpack for us, is found in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How are you going to be able to count others as more significant than yourselves? How are you going to have an appreciation for their value and worth and what they bring to the table? He says it has everything to do with your mind. Literally, this passage reads in the original... Have this mind or, or mindset within yourselves in Christ Jesus. I love the way the New International Version translates this. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is the key to living the Christian life. And this is the key to growing in humility. I love the way Michael Gorman in his book, Becoming the Gospel, put it. Cultivate this mindset This way of thinking, acting, and feeling in your community, which is in fact a community in Christ Jesus. Cultivate this kind of mindset, this way of acting, thinking, and feeling. And so let's just make this important point. There should be a different way of being human that is on full display within the community of faith that gathers together in the name of Jesus. When Christians gather, as they do this morning, in communities of faith like ours, there should be a radically different way of being human than exists outside in that world. And it has everything to do with the mindset of Jesus. And so Paul drives this point home. Have this mind or mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? And then what follows, my friends, is a beautiful beautiful description of Jesus. It's one of the highest descriptions of Jesus found in the New Testament documents. Listen as we get ready to to dive into what this description says to these words from Dennis Johnson in his commentary. Speaking about this passage we're getting ready to look at he says, this passage is a majestic mountain peak towering over the surrounding countryside. It is a pinnacle of theological truth piercing the heavens and probing the mystery of the incarnation." Its dramatic movement traces the inverted arc of Christ's redemptive mission from divine glory down into humiliation and death, and then up again to heaven's heights and resurrection splendor. This brief and beautiful text is one of the fullest, most explicit descriptions in the New Testament of the identity of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful setup about what, what we're about to look at here. My friends, this description of Jesus and the heart of Jesus puts us on holy ground. Just as when God revealed himself to Moses, telling him that he was standing on holy ground, so too in this text, God is giving us a full revelation of himself in Jesus. Therefore, we too are standing on holy ground. And so, in a sense, my friends, like Moses took off his shoes, let's, let's metaphorically take off our shoes in reverence as we get ready to look at who Jesus is. So Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here you see that phrase, the form of God, Actually, Paul's going to use that phrase form or that word form two times. One to speak of Jesus being in the form of God and next in the the next breath about him being in the form of a servant. But, But let those words jump out to you. Who though he was in the form of God. Someone says, wait, he's not saying Jesus is God, is he? This is exactly what he's driving at. Though he was in the form of God, the Christian Standard Bible translates it like this, existing in the form of God. The New International Version translates it, being in very nature God. Jesus isn't just a wise man of old. He isn't just a person who not only taught us to love, but demonstrated how to love well. Jesus is not just one of the great teachers of the past. He is divine. Listen to how John the Apostle, one of Jesus' best friends on earth, put it. He said, In the beginning was the Word. And he picks up this phrase here, the Word. It's logos in Greek. But it's this description that was prominent in Greek thought about the organizing rational principle of the universe. What the Greeks thought of as as an organizing rational principle, this, this rationality that organized the universe, John says that rational principle actually has a name. It's Jesus. And so he picks up that phrase and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he says a few verses later, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Theologians describe this as the incarnation. When God took on human flesh, that was the incarnation of Jesus. It literally means the enfleshment or the embodiment of God. This glory that Jesus had existed with God before the founding of this world. In fact, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he actually prayed this prayer. John chapter 15, he says, or 17 rather, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The book of Hebrews says this, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus not only exists in the form of God, but he is is God, he is with God. In his earthly life, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. The Apostle Paul would later put it like this to his, his colleague Titus. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. My friends, do you see how this separates Jesus from every other religious leader or great thinker in history? Jesus may have some things in common in terms of having influence and and being a great teacher that many other people do, but Jesus is in a category all by himself. In that he did all of that and more because he was a divine being and fleshed. And so let me just put it this way it is possible to think and speak highly of Jesus, as many people do, but it's also possible to not think and speak of Jesus highly enough. Did you ever read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity? If not, I would commend it to you. It was originally a series of short radio broadcasts that were put into a form of a book. But in it, he's challenging his friends in England to think deeply about Jesus. And in this, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. People try to visualize what C.S. Lewis has said here in the form of a graphic, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. When you take the claims of Jesus, and especially his claims at being the divine being in flesh, these claims are either true or false, right? They can't be anything else. Let's consider if these claims are false for a moment. If these claims are false, we have the option of Jesus knowing that these claims were false. And if that's the case, he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's a hypocrite because he, he told people not to lie. And if he's a liar, he's also evil because he convinced people to give their lives for him. And if that's also the case that he knew, he's also a fool. Because he went to the cross claiming these very things. But maybe he didn't know that his claims were false. And if that's the case, he's a lunatic. I mean, there are other people who've claimed to be God, right? And if Jesus didn't know his claims were false, but nevertheless claimed to be divine, then he would just be another fool of history. And it would be right to write him off as just being simply crazy or deluded. But there's really one other option. And that's that his claims were true. And if his claims are true, then he is Lord. And if he is Lord, each and one of us, you and me, individually are confronted with a choice. Do we accept that claim or do we reject it? Do we fall at his feet and call him our Lord and our God? Or do we just turn away? Back in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Just a little quick pop quiz here. (laughs) By definition, who or what is equal to God? I mean, nothing, right? (laughs) Except for God himself. There's only one supreme being. There's only one who has all knowledge. There's only one who's everywhere present. And so we're told that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And yet, Jesus himself made the claims of being divine. There's this interesting place in the Gospel of John. I just want to pull it up here for you real fast. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father... Are one. And what's interesting about what he just said is to see the reaction of the crowds around him, which thought this was blasphemy. We're told they picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make Yourself God. They understood what Jesus was claiming. And what's interesting is Jesus, when he sees them pick up stones, and and here's the reason why why they're wanting to stone him because he's making himself God, he doesn't go to them and say, Oh, you guys misunderstood me. I wasn't, I was just saying there's a spark of divine in me or something like that. He, He didn't say that. He didn't correct them. Jesus went with this. And so we're told that Jesus, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus, while he was human, didn't cling to all the rights and prerogatives that come with being God, but we're told that he emptied himself. And when we hear Paul saying this, we need to hear him saying, in other words, Jesus didn't cling to or assert his right to be worshipped and served. Nor did he consider his life more significant than ours. Remember the context. Paul is encouraging the Philippian Christians, and through them, us, to consider one another as more significant than ourselves. And so Jesus, who is more significant than ourselves, he is the creator God, emptied himself of the rights to be worshiped and served as that God. How did he do that? We're told he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, this divine being, adds to himself now a human body. He becomes in the form of a servant. So when we think of Jesus, the right way to think of him, the most high and exalted way of accurately capturing who he is, is to say Jesus is 100% divine and at the same time 100% human. That's who Jesus is. Stephen Lawson, in his commentary on the book of Philippians, put it like this. He said the Son of God added to his person a human nature without surrendering any of his divine attributes. This was an act of self-renunciation on the part of the Son of God by which he voluntarily chose not to exercise all of his rights as God during the time of his earthly life. In his incarnation that is, in his enfleshment, Jesus did not diminish his deity. When he assumed human flesh, he never became less than fully God. What Jesus did was yield the free exercise of his divine prerogatives. Jesus, the Son of God, says Lawson, assumed all of the limitations of finite humanity. While he remained fully and truly God, he became fully and truly human. As Paul put it, he took on the form of a servant. As we look at that word servant, it's literally the word slave. And we need to to hear that word in this first century context. Because in the first century Roman Empire, slaves had no rights whatsoever. Our English word servant, in my translation used here, obscures this just a little bit. Because in the Roman Empire, there were people who were servants. They could hire themselves out as servants, pay off debt, that sort of thing. But slaves had no rights. They couldn't go to court. They couldn't sue people. They were the lowest of the low. And so here's the important point we need to get from what Paul is saying here. Jesus, as the one who had every right, became as one who had no rights. Do you see that? This is how he emptied himself. This one who had all glory, he emptied himself of every right that he has, to be worshipped and to be served and to adored. And he became as one who had absolutely no rights. Theologians describe this as the, the condescension of Jesus. In our English language now, that word condescension usually is in the context of someone having a, a condescending attitude towards someone, right? A holier than now, looking down their nose at someone else. But that's not what that word means in this context. It's the older sense of the word as Merriam-Webster's Dictionary puts it, of a voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relations with an inferior. Jesus, in his incarnation, condescended, not simply to the point of becoming a human being, but taking the form of a servant as one who had absolutely no rights. So do you get what he's saying here? The one who in every way was superior, superior became as one who in every way was inferior. As Jesus put it in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, Paul in verse 8, Philippians 2 put it like this, Being found in human form, he humbled himself. My friends, I want you to, to remember the thread that's going through this. It's 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 understanding to get lost in the luster of what Paul is Describing here is this glory of Jesus and his condescension and his incarnation. But remember, in verse 3, he's calling this Philippian community, as he's calling us, to in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And the way to do that is to adopt the mindset of Jesus. That mindset, by the way, is one in which Jesus humbled himself. So we're getting all this beautiful news about Jesus that really serves not just simply theological interests for Paul, but ethical interests. In, in other words, how we ought to live. So remember that call to be humble, and he's shown us Jesus, the greatest, the most superior person, who now has humbled himself. And he tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became obedient. He he perfectly fulfilled the law. He he did everything in showing us what a human being was meant to be. When you want to know what love in a person looks like, it gets no clearer, no no more crystal clear than it does when you look at Jesus. But He became obedient to the Father. Not simply when it was easy, but, but even when it was hard jumping over to the gospel of Luke real fast in those final hours before Jesus was was arrested. We're told that he withdrew <clears throat> excuse me, he withdrew from them <clears throat> about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, "Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." In the ancient way of speaking, to drink a cup means to drink down your destiny. And as Jesus is, is faced with what he knows is his imminent death, he prays and asks the Father, if there's any way else that this can happen, that salvation might be accomplished, then by me going forward with this crucifixion, please let that happen. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became drops of blood falling to the ground. This is a condition known as hematidrosis, where a person is so much stressed, so much under duress, that their blood vessels and their capillaries begin to leak out and to move into their sweat glands, and they begin to, to sweat drops of blood. See, in this moment, my friends, Jesus is about to face the onslaught of, onslaught of the powers of darkness, not to mention the sins of the world, sins like yours and mine, heaped upon him at one point. And so Jesus as he says in the Gospel of Matthew, became sorrowful even to the point of death, which echoes that beautiful psalm in Isaiah, when he poured out his death, his soul to death, rather, and yet he bore the sins of many. And so we're told that Jesus, being in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way our English puts it like that, it makes it sound like he he was obedient right up to that point of the cross. And that's true. But I think maybe a better way of putting it is Jesus was obedient even in the face of death, even death on a cross. That is, Jesus was obedient not only when it was easy, but even when it was the very hardest. Jesus was obedient to the point of staring death in the face, even the excruciating death of a Roman cross. If you think about that Roman cross. Romans weren't the ones who invented crucifixion. That distinction goes to the Persians, who were crazy and sadistic enough to come up with the idea that we ought to nail a human being to some planks of wood. The Romans evidently liked what they saw and adopted that practice, and they I can put it this way they perfected the art of slowly torturing someone to death. Jesus is facing this. He knows he's facing it, and he remains obedient to the point, to the face of death. Cicero, who lived a century before Jesus, described crucifixion as the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. Josephus, writing in the century following Jesus, said, it's the most pitiable of deaths. We get that word excruciating in our English vocabulary, which literally means out of the cross. (laughs) To think about the most exquisitely torturous pain a person can face, it's it's thought it can get no worse than what's faced when a person is nailed to a cross, where they, they slowly suffocate as their blood drips from their body. Sometimes it lasted for days. Excruciating to experience severe pain and suffering, intense mental anguish and agonizing torture. Jesus was obedient to the Father in the face of this. As the poet said, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tell me you who hear him groaning. Was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning. Foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. My friends, if we follow the thought of Paul in this beautiful description of Jesus. Jesus went from his exalted status of being bathed in glory to his incarnation, his enfleshment, beginning with his humble birth and living among people like us to the moment when he was tortured, literally within an inch of his life, and then brutally nailed to a cross. So my friends, when you think of Jesus on the cross, What comes to your mind? What what thoughts emerge there? What what emotions intersect with your being in this moment? No doubt there's there's many thoughts and emotions that, that stir within us as we think about Jesus. But let me say one thing we ought not to do. We ought not to pity Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Make no mistake about it, my friends. Christ humbled himself voluntarily as an act of obedience to the Father, that he might become the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world for the forgiveness of sins. You see, my friends, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't humble Jesus. The Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, did not humble Jesus in his trial before Herod the tetrarch Herod did not humble Jesus standing before Pilate who gave the execution orders Pilate did not humble Jesus the Roman so- Roman soldiers who who took delight in tearing the flesh of Jesus off his body did not humble Jesus the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross did not humble Jesus. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of his rights to be worshipped and adored, served, and obeyed. He emptied himself of that and was stricken, smitten, and afflicted as he hung on that cross. His life slowly and relentlessly draining from his body. People despised him and mocked him and cursed him. But they didn't humble him. Jesus humbled himself. And in those moments when insults and accusations and curses were or hurled at Jesus, the hearts of humanity, the hearts of people like you and me were exposed and laid bare for all of the world to see. But you know what else was laid bare and open for all the world to see? The very heart of Jesus. His self-giving, his life-giving love laid wide open, full display for the world to see. So in those six brutal hours, as Jesus' life drained from him, we see Jesus dying for his friends, we see Jesus dying for his family, and we see Jesus dying even for his enemies. You see, what Jesus did on that cross was he humbled himself and became our servant. The suffering servant that Isaiah the prophet wrote about some six, seven hundred years before Jesus stepped onto this planet. He humbled himself, and my friends, what we need to see when Jesus is hanging on that cross, is what we sung about just a while ago. In the stead or in the place of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a servant to people like you and me because we needed someone who was willing to get down to the muck and mire of our life, someone who was willing to take the stench of our rebellion and our sins against God upon himself, someone who was willing to bear the justice of God so that people like you and me can go free. We can can receive the forgiveness of our sins. So when you see Jesus standing there, don't pity him. Nobody humbled Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, by becoming obedient in the face of death, even the excruciating death of a Roman cross. For us and for our salvation Jesus before he arrived at this moment told his disciples these words I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep for this reason the father loves me because I laid down my life for the sheep that I may take it up again no one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus says, the Father said, I want you to bear the sins of the world. And Jesus said, yes, sir, it is my joy and delight to do so. No one took the life of Jesus from him. He laid it down on his own accord. I don't know if you saw Mel Gibson's uh, Life of Jesus. I can't remember what the title of it was. What was it? The Passion, yes. Um, I I watched that, and of course, there's all kinds of of, uh, creative liberty taken with that as all recreations of the life of Jesus are. But there was this one moment where Jesus is on his way to the cross, and of course, Simon... The sirene has to carry the cross for him because Jesus is so weak. He's, he's, he's been beaten literally almost to death. And so the soldiers take Jesus and they throw him down next to the cross. And in Mel Gibson's interpretation of this, he has the character playing Jesus crawl up onto the cross on his own accord. Now, we don't know that that happened. There's no account that that actually happened. But that picture... And that creative interpretation gets at exactly what I'm trying to get across here. No one humbled Jesus. He humbled himself. No one took Jesus' life from him. He gave it up voluntarily. In the place of ruined sinners stands the Lamb in victory. So, Paul says this. We don't have time to go into it. But he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I originally planned on getting all the way through verse 11 today, but it's not going to happen, so we're going to pick it back up in January after the Christmas service. But let's ask this question. Why is the Apostle Paul telling us about the humble, self-sacrificial love of Jesus? And the answer to that is, just as Christ humbled himself in self-giving, life-giving love for others, so we too are called to humble ourselves in self-giving, life-giving love for others. We're not called to atone for the sins of people. Jesus did that. But we are called to humble ourselves, just like Jesus did, in self-giving and life-giving love for others. That's what Paul is getting at. That's the reason he brings up the example of Jesus in the beginning. Have this mindset among yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In Jesus' is a supreme example of that because he did not count his life of greater worth and value than your life and mine. So, a couple points of application. The first one is this. Simply, the, the story of Jesus invites us into it. Remember how Donald Miller came to this realization that the biggest lie he has to deal with is life is a story about him? It's actually a story about Jesus. And Jesus' story invites us into it. Our lives make sent in light of his life. And so we need, to, we need to embrace that, those beautiful words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. What a beautiful prayer. What over and above love is displayed here in that moment? I love what Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist minister, once said. He said, I love this prayer, the prayer of Jesus also, because of the indistinctness of it. It is, Father, forgive them. He does not say, Father, forgive the soldiers who have nailed me here. He includes them. Neither does he say, Father, forgive the people who are beholding me. He means them. Neither does he say, Father, forgive sinners in, in ages to come who will sin against me. But he means them. Jesus does not mention them by any accusing name. Father, forgive my enemies. Father, forgive my murderers. <laughs> no. There is no word of accusation upon those dear lips. Father, forgive them. Spurgeon says, now into that pronoun them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the, Christ of, uh, the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word them. Father, forgive them. Can you get inside that word Can you see yourself included in that description of them who needs forgiveness? So, my friends, let's raise our hallelujah for the cross. We're told that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Or as the hymn writer put it in that beautiful hymn, Man of Sorrows. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So let's let's raise our hallelujah. But let's also lower ourselves in Christ-like humility. That night that Jesus was betrayed, the disciples were in this argument about which of them was the greatest. And in that moment, Jesus gets up quietly takes off his outer garment and picks up a towel and a basin of water and begins to wash their feet. We're told this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his feet, or under his power rather, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So my friends, what Paul is driving at here, and what the gospel of Jesus drives us at as well, is to humble ourselves in Christ-like humility so that we can offer self-giving, and life-giving love to others. So Mercy Hill Church, may God grant you the grace to humble yourselves in self-giving, life-giving love for others, just like your Savior did for you.